Uh, we are in the book of Hosea today, the book of Hosea. I love uh, this Bible study that we are doing going through this survey of the Old Testament. And um, we, you know, if you look in your Bible when you open it up, it looks like we're way more than halfway through. Um, so that should be encouraging. Uh, the next few books, though, are really small, so we have a lot more to cover. But Hosea is found right after the book of Daniel in our Bible, but it is not in the timeline right after Daniel. So here's where we're going to get into some of these, uh, what's called the minor prophets and how they, how they line up and their timelines are a little bit different than what we see in our Bible. This isn't a chronological thing, right? Hosea doesn't come after Daniel uh, in the chronological period, but it comes, in fact, at the very end of the um, uh, of the Assyrian, uh, whenever the Assyrians come in and capture the northern kingdom. Today, I have titled uh, this A Broken Home and a Broken Heart. A Broken Home and a Broken Heart. Um, this is, uh, and my phone is trying to talk to me right now. I don't know why. I'm recording this. Uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, I'm recording this. Uh, each of these Bible studies are recorded, so if you want to go back and listen, uh, you can. Um, so uh, anyway, let's see. Yeah. Some reason. Technology, right? It's supposed to be our friends. Uh, Hosea, I titled A Broken Home and a Broken Heart. Uh, this prophet lived actually before Isaiah. So he lived before Isaiah. Uh, he lived after, his ministry was after Amos, uh, which we will get to Amos in a couple of, uh, of weeks. Um, but Amos uh, had completely finished his ministry. Uh, Micah was not on the scene yet. Isaiah was not on the scene yet. Um, so Isaiah, and there's a little bit of differences just to give you a little bit of scope. Uh, Isaiah and Micah uh, primarily focused on the southern kingdom um, and Hosea and Amos focused on the northern kingdom. So if you remember, this was way back. Uh, I feel like we're almost like going back in time now. Uh, before any of the exile that had happened to the northern or the southern kingdoms. Uh, this is uh, early on. Um, so Amos would have served as a prophet to the northern kingdom, and then following that, Hosea is going to pick up the mantle uh, here where uh, Amos left off uh, and concentrate primarily on the kingdom of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, uh, the more wicked of the two kingdoms after the split after Solomon. Um, even though that in our Bible, Hosea is followed by Joel and then Amos, uh, Amos and, and, and Hosea are the two that I want to kind of contrast a little bit this morning. Um, you know, Joel is in the middle of this, but uh, again, not in the same time frame. So kind of to help us see a little bit. Uh, if you look at Hosea and Amos, their, their ministries aligned. You know, Amos happened, Amos was here and he served and then Hosea served and, and their, their words to the northern kingdom, uh, they sound different. They are, the, they are very similar in, in uh, the, the message, but the tone was very different. So I, I'd like to kind of give you a little contrast. I like to do this whenever we're looking at a survey of Scripture, so that whenever you go to read through it, it'll give you a better understanding as you jump into each individual book. Amos was one who thundered about the righteousness of God, whereas Hosea wept about the mercy of God. Hosea reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah, which would come again later. Um, but Hosea had this like kind of broken heart, kind of this weeping heart. Uh, Amos was one that looked at a lot of the heathen nations around Israel, whereas Hosea uh, looked primarily at Israel. Amos talked a lot about the law of God. Hosea talked a lot about the love of God. So Amos was about what broke God's law, and Hosea was about what broke God's heart. Um, this is another one of those passionate prophets. You hear a lot of, of um, in fact, it's kind of hard to do a survey in this because it almost, the last half of this book, or, or the last six chapters at least, um, are, are so much of like, it's almost like tears spread out all over. If you've ever been around a crying teenage girl, Here's what I have learned. I have two teenage girls, and believe it or not, they've cried. Uh, it's kind of shocking, I know. You're like, wow, in your house with as peaceful and as wise as you are of a leader? Yeah, they cry. Teenage girls cry. And what I've learned about teenage girls and how they cry is that sometimes 
there doesn't seem to be a rhythm to it. There doesn't seem to be a reason behind it. You know, my favorite thing to do is, as a dad, look to my crying daughter and say, why are you crying? And then her tell me, I don't know. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool, cool. This is easy for me to solve then. Let's, uh, let's help you. Um, I honestly kind of see Hosea, the last part of this book, um, it, he just seems to be weeping out, and it almost is like there's no rhyme or reason to it. Now, there is. We know that God's a God of order, but we also know whenever you get brokenhearted, you just spill things out, right? It just, it just pours over you. And so I want to I kind of make sure we understand who Hosea is and how his brokenness really gives us a theme for this book that, is, uh, that has his name as the title. Um, we know that he, he, that he has a timeline. Uh, he talks about when uh, he, was, he was sharing his prophecy. He prophesied during the reigns of, in the southern kingdom, was Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. So that was the, the kings in Judah. But again, Hosea was primarily prophesying to the northern kingdom, which we know... Uh, that was the time of Jeroboam II. Uh, and so Jeroboam II um, is a... Uh, uh, Hosea, he, he was longer than that one span of that king, but that was the one he mentions. Uh, so we know for sure he, was, he lived a little bit longer than that. Some people, some theologians say he, he, he had prophesied for 50 years. I mean, just a long, long time. Um, but as these, or his ministry had lasted for that long, his prophecies are are pretty condensed and concentrated in the time of Jeroboam II. A couple of things about Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. He was the one who, who uh, restored more territory to the northern kingdom uh, of anybody since the kingdom had been divided. If you remember Solomon, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom divided. Ten tribes went to the north, right? Two tribes went to the south. The northern kingdom called Israel, southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, and the northern kingdom, these ten tribes should have uh, united together and been a light in the community because God's people should be a light in the community. Um, what we find, Jeroboam was one of the ones that uh, gained, recovered more territory uh, than any of the kings before him since the kingdom had split. And so we also know he, he was a capable king. He was, he was, if you look through the history, just what we've talked about through the Kings and the Chronicles, he was the last king <clears throat> to take the throne in any sort of legal way. The rest of the kings that took the kingdoms after that all did so by either murdering the predecessor or some type of assassination. So he was the last one to actually legally take the throne. The rest of them murdered their way in. So uh, that was Jeroboam. Now, that, So that's, it's important for us to know kind of the, the, the state of Israel in that time because if Jeroboam was one that took a lot of territory back, there was almost this sense of influence coming back to the, the kingdom, right? There's almost this sense of, wow, th there's some great things happening. The world sees it as they're becoming more powerful, but we know that eventually the Assyrians will take over the northern kingdom. So just a couple things to know to note. Now, just because the kingdom from the outside had been gaining a little bit of influence. The kingdom within, the nation within, uh, was full of lawlessness, adultery, murder, drunkenness, indifference to God. We know that politically, um, here's where Israel would vacillate between the two, uh, two thoughts. Every now and then they would look to Egypt. They'd say, they would try to, to, to make Egypt an alliance. Then they would look to Assyria. They would try to gain influence with Assyria. They would go back and forth and back and forth. And what they were doing was saying, we have no aim. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we're supposed to be. So we're just going to follow after whoever is stronger in the moment. That's what Israel was doing. That doesn't sound like God's man. That doesn't sound like God's people. God's people say, there is no question, this is where I'm headed. This is who I am I will not sway one way or another. If you look at the symbolism between Egypt and Assyria, you had Egypt that most of the time in Scripture when somebody says they went down to Egypt, that means they fell away from the presence of God. 
Most of the time when they're talking about Assyria, Assyria was known for their cruelty and how they would brutally beat people up and forcibly take things from people. Egypt had a lot of riches, a lot of wealth, a lot of lure, and Assyria had a lot of dominance. And so you've got Israel now in this place with Jeroboam that is, is, is trying to figure out which way do we want to go? Do we want to follow after the dominant people and try to gain some power that way? Do we want to go down here with the sensual natures of, Israel, of, of Egypt and, and enjoy that? What do we want to do? So that's kind of where this happens. Um, what we realize is in this season that uh, the, when, the, when the tribes had separated originally after Solomon and the ten tribes went north and two tribes went south, um, what, what we saw was uh, that, that internal decay started happening within Israel. And here's, here's what happens. Whenever you're, you're disunified, decay happens, right? So whenever you, are, you, you aren't agreeing on the same thing, you aren't agreeing in the same direction with the same mission, um, decline is what happens next. And so uh, even though Israel thought, hey, we're doing the right thing, uh, one of the things Israel did if you, uh, if you note, and we'll see here in just a little while, uh, but something to give you a little background. One of the things Israel did when they first, if you remember, Jeroboam was the, one of the early kings of, of Israel, uh, not Jeroboam the second, but Jeroboam the first, uh, came in and, uh, you know, Rehoboam was like first guy, then, then Jeroboam. And Jeroboam came in and he set up two golden calves. Uh, he set up one in, um, in uh, uh, Samaria and one in um, Bethel. He set up these two golden calves. And when he did that, not as like false worship gods, he actually did it to worship Jehovah. He just made an image so they would worship him. That was the original intent. But we know in the, in the book of Exodus, God says, don't, don't, try to, don't try to make me into an image. I am, a, I am a, a, a God that cannot be wrapped up in one image. So what had happened was Israel set up these altars with these golden calves. And because of that, now th this isn't necessary. this matters because of one of the things Hosea will say in a little while that I want to make sure we cover in this book so we don't miss it. But they, they uh, had said, we're going to worship God. Here's, what he, here's how we're going to worship him. We're going to set up these golden calves and we're going to worship him, God. This is what he looks like. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense to us. We're like, why would God be a cow, right? There's, a, there's, there's more to this. Um, but they set these things up, and what began to happen was they thought they were doing good. They thought, we're being religious, doing good things. And before you know it, you think you're doing good, and you begin to allow things to creep in. They allowed uh, the worship services to be more and more watered down when they would go and worship. Eventually led to full false worship. See, uh, the enemy is too clever to tell you, you know, as soon as you walk out of church, hey, set up a, the, God, the moon god uh, um, or the god of fertility's statue in your home. See, the, the, the devil says something like this. You know, if you were just to take and think about how God has, has provided you the sun, so why don't you make a little sun and put that little sun uh, statue in your living room? And when you get home and you go pray to that thing, thanking God for the sun. Well, if you start watering down, then you start to think this sun represents God. Then you start to say, this is what I'm the object of my worship now. I'm going to go and I'm going to thank this statue for, because what happens is the devil knows he, you're not, you're not going to turn 180 right now. <laughs> the devil knows you're going to, you're going to just slowly creep in and you're going to slowly water down because then all you're seeing is God has given you the sun. Listen, God gave you the air in your lungs. He's given you everything. Don't try to make an image out of him. Don't try to, to water him down. Because what happens in Israel is they begin to slip, and this slip goes all the way down, even to the point of child sacrifices. That was happening in Israel. That was happening. Uh, Molech was a god that they had, had drawn them away. Why? Did they, did they walk out of, of the, the United Kingdom and say uh, the United Kingdom of God, God's people, uh, his chosen people, and uh, you know, had, the temple was, was built and beautiful? Did they walk right out of the temple and say, we're going to start sacrificing children to Molech? No, they slowly drifted. So this is very important for us to know because of who Hosea is. 
Hosea uh, is also known as the last prophet to the northern kingdom. After his ministry, Israel fell to Assyria. So there's cer- certain commentators that say he was, he's the deathbed prophet. He's the one that's like the last cry right before Israel is taken captive. So it's important to know. Uh, it, they, after his uh, ministry, the Israel, the northern kingdom, came to an end with the fall of Assyria. We'll look at this book, book in two parts today uh, for a couple of reasons, but two parts. The first, uh, we're going to look at the first three chapters, and then we're going to look at chapters 4 through 14. So the first three uh, give us a setup. This, the book will separate in two parts pretty easily, and you'll see why. The first three chapters are all about Hosea's home, all about his home life. And then the, the last section from chapters 4 to 14 are all about the nation, his people, um, the nation of Israel. So uh, the book begins in a very, very sad tone. So Hosea is a guy who in the first three chapters, and we'll, we'll kind of look through this. Um, I, won't, I won't necessarily read like a lot of verses in here, but uh, just so that you can understand where we're going. Um, the first chapter, we see the signs uh, that, that are pointed because of his home and what his home is, uh, his marriage and his children. He is uh, marriage. If you know much about the scripture, marriage is is used a lot as a symbol. Uh, some in the Old Testament, it's used as a symbol of of Israel to God. Right, that was the husband and, and wife, the the marriage union. Uh, and marriage is always a union, by the way, united. It's a united front. It's a it's a bringing together. The two shall become one. Right, there were two. Now they're one. God and Israel, the marriage in the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament, Jesus and the church. Uh, we also see in the New Testament, there's a false uh, church that's, that's represented as the harlot woman, right? That's not married to Jesus. Uh, that's the one that's trying to lure others away. So the harlot woman, that's the false church, um, not ever married to Jesus. We see that in the Old Testament, anytime, and any, anytime there's adultery, that's, that's what, you know, a harlot woman is one that's not faithful um, a, uh, uh, in, in the Old Testament, anytime adultery happens in a marriage, it, it disrupts the union, right? So it's a disruption of the union. Same thing spiritually. So what, what God is trying to teach us is that unfaithfulness to God is like spiritual adultery. That's, that's what he's saying. So it, it's, it's very uh, discomforting. It's very uh, disunifying, and it, it disrupts the union of the marriage. So that's an important thing to know as you think about the symbols here. Um, in fact, uh, as I, uh, this Hosea had a wife. His wife's name was Gomer. Gomer was a, um, uh, not a faithful woman. She was a uh, prostitute. She had a very, very tough rough story. Um, and in this story, we're going to see some things that are uh, very hard to kind of deal with, hard to kind of wrap, wrap our minds around. Um, I, I want to say, as I was reading some commentaries, I read this line that was in this commentary um, that is an old commentary. It was written several years ago, so this phrasing um, is going to sound like it. Uh, a woman of whoredom who uh, was a woman who believed that her body was her own and she could do with it whatever she pleased. I, you know, I could turn on the news and tell you that the world today um, thinks that what we have is ours. It doesn't belong to our maker. I, I'm, I'm going to go and tell you this. God has given us stewardship of what he owns. I am a steward of what God owns. God owns this body. He owns it. I'm a steward of it. God owns everything. We steward what he gives us. As I began to think about this through the Old Testament, I see a lot, a lot of this. Like, Listen, this, there's nothing new under the sun. See, a woman who chose this path said, this is my body. It's my decision what I do with it. And the whole time, God says, you can do with it what you choose. Just know there's consequences because I own it. It's, it's mine. Ultimately, it's mine. As we read through this, 
uh, we're going to see a couple of things happen here. In chapter 1, uh, we see the name of Gomer and, uh, and Hosea's three kids, the three children that Gomer had. Um, and we're going to experience something very difficult. So Hosea had this wife named Gomer, and she was an unfaithful woman, we will see. Uh, she has three children. The first is a son named Jezreel. They name him Jezreel. The reason they name him Jezreel is uh, it takes us all the way back to the days of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, this is, a, this is a prophet's words. If it's written in the Bible and a prophet either said it or wrote it down, it's because it has a deeper meaning than what you even see, right? There's something beyond uh, what is just on the surface. It wasn't because Jezreel was the cool name at the time. It's because Jezreel pointed us to a time of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, if you remember... There was a Jezreelite named Naboth uh, that refused to sell an inheritance to the king. Now, that whole story we, we, there is in the, in the book of the Kings. Um, love to dive into it, but trying to survey this today. Uh, the point of it is that because of that, there was a curse that came on Ahaz's family. So there was a curse that happened because of the, the misappropriated uh, inheritance. Um, and so there was a judgment that was pronounced on Ahab and his house. Uh, which was the judgment of God that ended up, here's what's crazy, it ended up destroying two dynasties, two dynasties. Uh, and we, we saw one of them before this and one of them uh, in the middle of this. And so the name Jezreel that Hosea gave this first son's name uh, is to proclaim a judgment that is coming on the people of Israel. And here's something that's even even uh, in my mind, kind of, I geek out a little bit, right? In my mind, it's even, even kind of more awesome. There is a, uh, uh, he was, what, what, <laughs> what God was saying through Hosea by calling his son Jezreel, uh, that this is an instrument pointing to the destruction of the northern kingdom in specifically the valley of Jezreel, which do you know much about the valley of Jezreel? It's also where we see in Later, there is a battle of Armageddon that is coming in the valley of Jezreel because that is a judgment of God that is coming. This is, the first, this is a sign that we see pointing to more than just what's right there in front of him. Um, as uh, as we, we look, so that's the first son they have. Then they have a daughter. Now here's where it gets really, really frustrating. Um, the, it says in verse number 6 of chapter 1 that she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said, call to her, her name will be. Now some translations already translate this word. Some translations leave the word in it that's not translated. The word is lo rumaha, lo rumaha, which means no mercy, no mercy. That word uh, of no mercy specifically means unloved or a daughter whose name meant she knew never a father's love. Um, this, now this is when Hosea had to understand something. Gomer was not a faithful woman. She was not a faithful woman. So he sees her, he sees this daughter, and um, he, so Hosea sees this daughter and, and realizes this, this may not be his daughter. This woman has cheated on him. This woman has gone out and, and become a woman of the streets. And so uh, he's realizing this may be no kin of his. Um, and this poor little girl was the daughter of some unnamed man that, don't, that Gomer had committed adultery with. Now, remember, what you're seeing in Hosea is a picture of what's happening in Israel it's also a picture of what's to come for Israel and his people, God's people. Um, this one is really heavy because the name that is given to this daughter is a symbol. It symbolizes the heaviness of the withdrawal of mercy of God to his people. So here's what God's saying with this daughter that God says, name her no mercy. Because God's saying, I am removing my mercy from my people. Why? Because my people have committed spiritual adultery and they have run off and cheated on me with false gods and it's overwhelming me. And what is being produced 
What sin gives birth to death, right? Sin, when, when, sin, when, when it's conceived, when temptation is conceived and you have sin and sin breeds death, this is God saying, my mercy is now being withdrawn. Um, the nation has betrayed me. And then the third uh, child they have is a son, and they name this son uh, Lo-Ami. Uh, and Lo-Ami literally means not my people, uh, not my people. And this was the second son of Gomer. Uh, that name, it, it literally means no kin of mine, found in chapter 1. Um, and the, uh, it was just the next, that was the next verse, verse number 9, uh, verse number 8 and 9. Um, and you'll see, he says, no kin of mine. This is, Hosea disowns any relationship to this child. He knew at this point his wife uh, was just a, uh, a woman that has cheated on him, and it's very clear. Uh, she has shown, uh, at this point, Gomer uh, was shown as the people of Israel who had committed spiritual adultery against God, the husband who loved her. Um, Gomer, Gomer... Hosea loved Gomer, loved her. And, you know, it's the picture of God loving his people and then his people cheating on him and then him saying, this is, this is just not what we need. This is not what we're looking for. I think something very awesome, though, happens in chapter 2 that I didn't realize until I was doing this survey because I started to see all these pictures kind of come together. And uh, in chapter 2... If you, if you read it, there is a uh, Hosea doesn't, in their day-to-day life, their, their kids had a name, but in their day-to-day life, he didn't call them by that full name. He called them by something different. Hosea called them um, uh, different names. He says, uh, uh, say to your brothers, you are my people. And he says, say to your sisters, you have received mercy. These, these daily conversations, uh, even though, because here's, here's what Hosea understood. In call, instead of calling them uh, Lo-Huruma and Lo-Ami, he called them Ami, which means mine, and Ruma, which means pitied one. Reflecting to us the grace of the, of the true husband, the, the grace of the true father, the one that loves us. He, uh, Hosea wrapped those little unfortunate children in his arms um, because it wasn't their fault. Their, their mom was a woman of the streets. They, they were a product of sin, much like we are a product of sin. And I'm very thankful that God doesn't look at me and say, no mercy. He looks at me and he says, mercy. He looks at me and he doesn't say, I don't know who you are. He says, I, I, I pity you. You are my people. You're just not quite the same. Um, this... Uh, chapter 2 talks about the heartbreak of how Israel treated her husband. Uh, so it went from Hosea, how his wife treated him, to now how Israel treated her husband. Um, Hosea has been forced now to disown his wife, just as God would disown Israel. So God's going to disown Israel for a season, just as Hosea is disowning his wife. Um, you know, this is a point where um, when you read this and, and, and step back, we can go verse by verse if you wanted. Uh, but but uh, again, our whole purpose here and hope here is that we see something that we, we don't see if we're down in the, in the dirt digging. Um, at this point, Israel is now a, a um, blushing woman of the streets, right? This Israel has has given her her life away. She has gone out to chase new lovers of foreign gods. That's what Israel has done, much like what Gomer has done to Hosea. Hosea was forced to to distance himself from her, to turn his back on her, and because she's she's now pursuing foreign relationships. Just as Israel is is pursuing foreign relationships with other gods and God is broken hearted. God will let her go and uh, let her have her fill in the foreign lovers until she finds herself. Here's where chapter two gets really hard. This is, I, I, um, I've gone through this survey uh, so far. I have shed some tears over this book 
because this is, uh, you know, and I think, well, Jeremiah was the really, really crybaby, you know, <laughs> why is this one so hard? And it's because I, I see this, um, this terrible scene that happens in chapter 2. Um, God lets Israel go, just as, just as Gomer was let go from her husband, and um, so that she can experience all the joy and all the whatever that her new lovers, her foreign lovers, are going to bring her. And then it, it explains that she's going to find herself stripped beaten, crushed, and betrayed. And then it's going to recall to her mind her husband that loved her. And as I look through this, that's a a picture of what happens when we run away from God. We will find ourselves stripped, beaten, crushed, and broken. And there's a moment, just like the prodigal son, when we think, Dad wasn't so bad. My, My home isn't so bad. As I read through this book, it just breaks my heart to think that there's a day that, um, that Israel had to get to the point where she was so broken and so crushed that it was the memory of her husband that, that brought her any type of joy at all. There was no joy found in the foreign lovers anymore. Um, then chapter 3 happens. So if chapter 2 was about the, the scandalous wife, chapter 3 is about the husband. Uh, one of the greatest prophecies in all the Bibles in chapter 3. Short chapter, just a few verses in chapter 3. Um, great prophecies here. Um, this is where the Lord tells the prophet uh, to love the woman again that has sinned against him. There, there may be uh, more powerful writings um, of, of, of um, strength and might and, and determination in the Bible, but there's probably not much more tenderness that you'll find right here in chapter 3 because Hosea goes back and to, to redeem the woman that he loved, the woman who has cheated on him, the woman that has broken his heart. Um, She has gone so far into the foreign lovers that she has sold herself into slavery. Again, I told you, she's going to be beat, crushed, broken, stripped. Uh, She's she's at the bottom, right? She's, She's in slavery. So much so, he buys her back. He goes to redeem and purchase her. And as he does... I thought it interesting that he redeems her, he purchases her for 15 shekels of silver. Did you know the going rate found in Exodus 21 for a slave is 30 shekels of silver? 30. He buys her for half price. And then throws in some barley, which is animal feed, um, that shows us how truly worthless she was to every of those foreign lovers that she ran to. Um, do you think the enemy that's tempting you finds any actual value in you? Because there's a day coming where he'll sell you at, at, at next to nothing. He doesn't care about you. These foreign lovers that she chased didn't care about her. They, don't, they didn't love her. They used her. They got what they wanted. And then whoever the next highest bidder was. Hosea goes back and purchases her back. She's so undesirable at this moment. Um, In verse number three, something cool happens. He tells her that she'll have a period of time, there will be separation. Kind of a a trial and preparation time. So he buys her back, uh, but there's this season of trial and 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 preparing her to receive her, her husband back. And um, in this, in this uh, period, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 3 um, show us something. Do you know for the last 2,000 years, this is, this is just, uh, <laughs> a 
God is so cool. Like this book, let me tell you guys, the more, the more you get in this book, it is awesome. Do you know for the last 2,000 years, it, it says in verse number four, let me just read this. Um, it says, for the children of Israel shall, shall dwell many days without knowing, without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. That's what verse number four says. Do you know for the last 2,000 years, Israel has had no king. Israel has had no prince. Israel has had no... If you, if you honestly do all your research in Israel right now, they are as a wandering generation. They are as a wandering people. They don't have any... They, they don't even have... If, if you go to Jerusalem, they don't even own the city that they're, that they're living in. They don't even own God's city anymore. They got nothing. They don't have household gods anymore. If you were to ask Israel, who do you serve? They're like... God. And that's their phrase. They don't have any graven images anymore. There's no, they're, they're looking to still find a, a way to sacrifice to appease God. They are, for 2,000 years now, they have been without king, without prince, without, that has happened right here in, in Hosea 3, 4. Like that's, it's going on. We're seeing this come to play right now. God loves, listen, God loves all people, but, but the, the nation of Israel has his heart. The nation of Israel, there's a, there's a day coming whenever this restoration is going to happen. And there's some more beautiful prophecy to that. But I want you to see something really awesome that happens, this shift. So the first three chapters were about Hosea's home. And these next uh, uh, few chapters here are about his nation. But I want you to see something, something that I, uh, radically shifted my, uh, gave me a deeper love of the one who loves me. Um, when God forgives you, listen to this. This is, this is, whew, this is I got chills already because I know what I'm about to say. When God forgives you, he forgets about your mistakes. When God forgives you and redeems you, he no longer sees the old you. Do you know from this point on in the book of Hosea, after Gomer has been redeemed and bought, there is no more mention of the wife or the children. No more. Why? Because it's been taken care of. Because the king came and restored her. The, the husband came and restored his wife. Now the rest of the prophecy is all about Israel. Now I think there's a couple of places I'm going to refer back to um, Gomer, uh, but as Hosea, as the prophet, because he was, he was the one writing this down. He was the one uh, giving this prophecy. And I think that it came from, I think it's all built on the foundation of his home life and how God restored and how God broke and how God uh, uh, brought back uh, what he did. Again, all this to picture uh, what's, what's to come in Israel. So here we see the nation. Uh, the second section, these last six chapters, uh, I want to look in um, uh, just, this is the part where I was talking about, it's almost this outbursting cry. Um, I said six chapters, this is from chapter four to chapter 14. I'm, <laughs> I've lost my mind. Um, and so in these, uh, these last section, you, this is the outburst of crying and tears from uh, Hosea. This is his, uh, we, we see just... It's all over the place. These first, from chapters 4 to chapter 7, uh, it begins with a controversy. Listen to what it says in verse number 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Chapter 4, verse 1. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There's a controversy. So what happens? Well, uh, here's what was going on. Verse number two, they were swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. Uh, they bloodshed follows bloodshed. You give a picture of the way Israel had, had not only just turned away from God originally, but now they are so far away and so far into their sin and their filth. Um, listen to what God says in verse, verse number 17. Ephraim, which is another word for Israel, by the way. You'll hear the word Ephraim a lot from here on out. Uh, that's the way Hosea uh, uh, referenced the people of Israel. Uh, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. This is one of the saddest statements in all the Bible. God saying, they have joined to idols. My people have joined to idols, so leave them alone. That's chapter 4, verse 17. And as we see that, he even talks about Judah. 
Again, mostly Hosea primarily is focusing on Israel. He mentions Judah every now and then as the Lord inspires him. Um, and in chapter 5, uh, chapter 4 talks about the problems that are, how the people are just filled with sin. So much so, God even says, they're married to idols. Let them, uh, let them uh, enjoy what the idols bring them. Um, then chapter 5, uh, we see a punishment's coming. See, a punishment's coming. Hosea uh, focused in on Israel a lot, talked about Judah a little bit in chapter 5. He starts with the phrase, I know Ephraim. You know, I know Ephraim. He's saying, listen, I know who they are. Like, I know their thoughts. I know their mind. I know their attitudes. I know their behaviors. I know them. I know who they are. Um, And then verse number 12, something happens in verse 12 of chapter 5, which I think is, is... Odd. So as I read through the Bible, certain things will stand out, and I wonder why they stand out to me. This was this is one of those that stood out. It's a very specific and very particular, unique um, uh, figure of speech, um, very unexpected through this. But listen to what it says in chapter five, verse number twelve. But I, God, am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Do you know um, that, so most of the time when God punishes people, he wants them to know it, right? He wants them to be very aware. Um, if a moth is, is destroying a piece of clothing in a closet, you don't hear it, you don't notice it, you, it just, it's happening. It's happening like right now, right? If dry rot is messing with some place in your house, it doesn't tell you it's happening. It's happening quietly, and you don't realize it until it's completely destroyed. As just as Israel has gone away from God and thought they were doing things in secret, God's saying, I'm going to destroy you from within and from without. You, you name it, I'm, I'm, because God says, I'm all-consuming. You're not going to find judgment. You're not, not going to see this judgment coming. Because you have turned such a blind eye to me, I'm a, I can destroy you from within, I can destroy you from without. It's just an interesting uh, figure of speech. Um, it's an unseen, unheard destruction uh, that God is going to bring on the people. Then chapter 6 is really great uh, in a certain sense. Um, the Lord shows a little compassion. A little compassion. Now, but here's, here's what happens, though. In, in chapter 6 is where I want to... I want to bring us back to the mind of Hosea. Because in chapter 6, Hosea is, as he's talking about this, he goes from, uh, from one thing to another. Again, this is why I think about like the crying teenager, right? You go one extreme to the other. Uh, you can hear tones of compassion, and then you can hear tones of like, you know, the day of grace is coming. Well, then one moment, it's also, then this, the day of judgment is coming. It's like, there's a day of grace. Oh, we're getting judged hard. But then there's a day of grace. Well, then there's another day of, of this. I believe that God speaks through men and God speaks through people. And I believe as God speaks through people, I think he uses certain, certain wirings of those people. And especially whenever he used the prophet's home life to explain spiritual truths that were going to happen to the people of Israel and prophecy. I think that uh, in my mind, I can't help but think Hosea is writing these things and he's writing about days of grace. Yay. Days of judgment, no. This really good thing, this really bad thing. And you can hear it in the, in the subtleties. And I, I can't imagine um, Hosea's thought whenever Gomer was gone, right? Whenever, Gomer, whenever he had to leave Gomer and she was out on her own, and him thinking about the days that he did have good days with her. And then thinking, what's she doing right now? And then be broken about it. And then be, be compassionate about it. I'd love to have her laying next to me tonight. And then thinking, she's laying next to somebody else. And this like anger well up in him, right? That's, that's the way that this, he's writing these next couple of chapters. He even talks about this content for Israel. In chapter, seven, chapter 6, just kind of flows into chapter 7. One of the things he says in chapter 7, verse number 8, I want to read this one. Ephraim, Israel mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. 
I don't know what a cake not turned is, so I had to look it up. I had to figure that out. There's a lot of these phrases as he is weeping over this. You know, in, in, in ancient days, whenever they would make cake, they would, they would bake it on a stone, a hot stone. And so they would put the cake on the hot stone, and then there was a point where you had to flip the cake, turn the cake over, so that it would cook on both sides, right? And so evenly cook, because it's just a hot stone. It'd be like, it'd be like trying to cook a cake on, on a stovetop, right? That would be, that's hard. I would, I would assume that's hard to do. I'm not a big baker, but I would assume that's hard. So uh, what would happen is um, there was a moment whenever they were making these cakes that if, if you left it lingering too long on one side, it would not only burn, it would crisp it really, really quick. And then the other side would just be raw dough. Like it was like not cooked at all, which then would in turn say this cake is no good for anybody. Nobody. Like he's saying Ephraim, Israel is no good for anybody. It's not only it's not good for the baker, it's not good for anybody that's hungry. It's not good for anybody that would, that would possibly feast, that could possibly fill their stomach. It is not good. In the next ver- couple of verses later, it says uh, Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense in verse number 11. A dove, silly and with no sin. A silly dove. <laughs> you wonder where a silly goose came from, right? Here it is. Uh, Ephraim is like a silly dove. Um, and then he says, calling Egypt and going to Assyria. Remember, I talked about in the beginning, um, it was, at this point it was vacillating between the two, the two worlds. Who do I listen to? Who has my ear today? If you wake up and you say, I'm going to watch the news on this channel, and then I'm going to go and watch the news on this channel, and you think, they're saying something different on these two different channels. Who's got your ear, right? If this is your world and you're trying to figure it out, you're like the silly dove of Ephraim. You're like the one that says, I don't know who I'm supposed to listen to. Who sounds better today? Who makes me feel better today? So uh, they have no aim. They don't know where exactly to listen. So the first, this chapters 4 to 7 here, um, talking about how the people are just filled with sin and how they don't, this is the explanation of that. Um, even when there's moments of these compassionate things and thoughts, it goes right back to there's a judgment coming because of who they are, because of where they have been. Um, chapters 8 through 10 talk about how the people are fooled by sin. If the people are filled by sin, you like how I did that as a little preacher uh, alliteration there? People are filled with sin in chapters 4 through 7. Chapters 8 through 10, the people are fooled by sin. Really, it's when the people get punished. It's what happens uh, in these next couple of chapters of how they uh, experience God's judgment. Uh, We see in chapter 8, verse number 1. I want to read read a couple verses out of of chapter 8 because I think it's good for us to experience this, and it will refer back to what I was explaining earlier. It says, set the trumpet to your lips like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant. See, they they broke a covenant. That's what chapter 8, verse number 1 says, and rebelled against my law. So it started out, Israel broke a covenant. You break a covenant, much like Gomer broke to Hosea. I promise to love you for the rest of my life. You're the only one for me. And then... That covenant gets broken. She lied. <clears throat> Verse number four gives a little bit more, uh, a little bit more definition of that. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And then verse five says, "I have spurned your calf, O Samaria, and my anger burns against them. How much? How long will they be incapable?" Of innocence. Here's, here's where, uh, remember, we talked about whenever the Israel had first gone out and they set up these two calves in these two cities, Samaria was the first one. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom for a very long time. And uh, they are, that's where they set up this first golden calf. And God's referring back to this here. He's saying, You remember that? You, you remember whenever you, you started to set up this golden image, you said in chapter 4, He's like, they, they took gold, they took their silver and gold and said, We're going to make ourself, the image of God. And God's saying, I gave you the stuff to use. What are you talking about? This doesn't work. I'm, I'm bigger than this. I'm better than this. I'm stronger than this. It is a scary, scary scene. Even uh, verse number 11, listen to verse 11 in chapter 8. 
It says, Because Ephraim, Israel, has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. They have multiplied these altars of sin over and over and over again. This is a desperate, and, and this is the cry of a husband. I, I, can, I can hear Hosea's tone in this. They just kept on sinning. They just kept on sinning. It did, they didn't stop. They had, they had voices that came to tell them to stop. They had, they had men of God rise up and say, stop, please stop. And they just didn't listen. They kept on sinning. Chapter 9, we see the terrible punishments that come because of that. Um, they're, they're, the people of Israel are fooled by their sin and then they're punished uh, by their sin in chapter 9. Listen to what it says in, in verse number 14. It got so bad in chapter 9 that the prophet even prays this. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. You know what, you know what Hosea is saying? Don't even let a kid be born into this. Another generation can't handle this. And again, Hosea is using very broken language here, very broken-hearted speaking, saying, Lord, I pray that they can't have kids because it's so bad. Why is it so bad? Because the husband has taken his mercy away from his people because his husband doesn't know who they are anymore. In verse number in chapter 10, um, it goes on and explains how this punishment is going to continue because they turn their back on God, and so God will turn his back on them. These last couple of chapters, chapters 11 through 14, are uh, uh, the way this ends. God gives some explanation here. Uh, I titled chapter 11, Who They Are. Um, it says in chapter 11 that, that the Lord, He knows the heart of the people. See, they were, they were taught by the law, by God. They were drawn by God. They were loved by God, and yet they didn't want anything to do with Him. And God says, they did not know. They did not know. And so because of that, He said, they're going to end up uh, reaping everything they've sown. Whatever they've sown in, they're going to reap. Um, they kept on sacrificing to the Baals and kept burning offerings to idols. And then, uh, even I mean, verse 3 of chapter 11, Yet I, I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk. Can you, can you imagine that God talking to these... To, I mean, he says, I was the one that taught you. I was the one that drew you in. I was the one that loved you, and yet you're turning away, away to other idols. You've done this to yourself. And into chapter 12, he talks about what has happened, what they've done. He's seen the problem. He gives a message to Judah in the first two, uh, from verses 2 to verse 6, and then to Ephraim or to Israel in verses 7 through 14 of chapter 12. He's giving these messages saying, here's what's happened, guys. Here it is. In case you need more proof, yes, you turned away, but I don't want to just speak metaphorically. Here's what's been going on. Here is what has happened. God sees the problem. He has seen the problem in their life. He's punishing Jacob according to his ways. He is, uh, he's taking care of this the way that he would take care of it because this is what's happened. And then in chapter 13, he talks about what's coming to Israel. This is where God punishes the people, the relentless punishment. Um, even in verse 3, he says, Therefore they will be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early. He say, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Israel's going to have your moment in the sun, but it's going to disappear. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna think you got it all together, but that moment is going to come to an end. And he even goes into verse, verse 4, But I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that brought you, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Besides me there is no Savior. God is saying to Israel, you can look to all those idols, but nobody saves but me. Nobody. Nobody. 
So this judgment is, chapter 13, if you read it all the way through, is judgment on top of judgment on top of judgment. On top, it is harsh. I, I like to think of this as being littered with judgment after judgment, ever growing. It is just constantly getting worse and worse and worse. Though he may flourish, <laughs> the Lord will come. Watch out. And then chapter 14, the way, this, the way Hosea ends, I think it ends with who's still in charge. See, in the end, there's a plea to return. You know, um, God, in, in chapter 14, again, Hosea was the last of the prophets in the northern kingdom, the deathbed prophet. After this, uh, Assyria captures the northern kingdom and takes over, and, um, and it's, it's, now they are, the nation is over. The nation's over. This is, this is in, in a sense, um, you know, the northern kingdom, they, they thought when, when they separated after Solomon, the northern kingdom, the people of God should have been a blessing. Rather, they were a curse to themselves and everyone around them. They, they were not, no one, no one liked uh, the way this turned out. Um, and as a, as a nation, the time had expired. As a nation, they were over. As a people, however, God's promises did not expire, nor will they. God will continue to care for his people. Um, he still remains faithful and his promises are still intact. Um, you know, verse number 8 of chapter 14. I just want to read these last two verses to you. Verse 8 says, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Um, you know, he says, Ephraim will say, what have I to do with idols? God's so much better. You know, I preached a couple weeks ago about what would happen in the end day when we see the enemy for who he is. And we say, why did I settle for these things? There's a day Israel is going to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the husband that loves her, the husband that has taken his, given his life for her, the husband that has bought her with a price, freed her, taken care of her. And eventually they're going to turn and say, what did I have to do with these things? Why did I turn to anything other than him? Why, oh why, oh why? I love how he says in verse 4, I will, love their I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. God is going to um, continue to love his people. I love how verse 9, how this whole book ends. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The prophet ends with this. The path to peace is wisdom. Because God's not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong. You know, as we close this, uh, you know, that, to me, that's a, a bit of a happy ending. Now, there was a lot that had to happen. A lot that had to happen. A bit of a happy ending for the people of Israel uh, that hasn't even experienced all of it yet. They haven't. Now, there's a remnant that got to go, and, and there's, there's the people have, that have been scattered have come back together. Israel's now a nation again. Uh, seen by other nations in the world um, today. Uh, that it's, it's amazing to see where Israel has come. I think that's why one of the reasons we're in the last days, the last uh, minutes of the last days. Um, but I wonder about Hosea's wife, Gomer. I wonder if, if she realized what she had. You know, I, I want to think that his ending was happy too. Uh, my heart's broken over this guy um, as an instrument that God used. Uh, it's, it's an honor to be used by the Lord. Just we never get to pick how he uses us, right? We just do whatever he says. If he's the Lord, then we'd say yes. That's how it works. Um, I hope today that as you, as you process and pray and think about what the Lord's done in your life and where he's taking you, my, my heart is to, to end today by saying this. Uh, the best path 
is wisdom because God's not wrong. So whatever he's doing in your life, accept what he's doing and know that the story's not over because you're still here. The story's not over. I don't know how long Hosea's life felt whenever his wife was away. I'm sure it felt like a long time. Um, Days are long. But as I say to young parents all the time, the days may be long, but the years are short. We will see before long uh, that God had it all under his control. So I encourage you today. Uh, We're going to jump into the book of Joel next week. I hope you come back and uh, with a refreshed spirit to see all he has done.